Thanks, Lily. I want to add my welcome uh, to Lachlan. It's great to see you here as we gather together to hear what God is saying to us in His Word. Here at Uni Church, we're a church that really is excited about hearing what God has to say. And so we keep opening up God's Word and working through our books of the Bible uh, to hear what God has to say to us. I keep saying to people, you don't want to hear what's in some preacher's head up the front. We want to hear what God has to say. If I haven't met you, my name's Rowan. I'd love to catch up with you after church. But why don't we now think through the implications of this passage that's before us? Because I want to say the implications of this passage are huge. See, not a day goes past without somewhere in the world some tragedy occurring. Whether that be a a shooting at an airport or a financial crash, a a natural disaster or an act of terror. Or sometimes just, maybe it's just a plain accident. Every day, suffering raises its ugly head in the lives of many. And my guess is that somewhere along the line, you've had to deal with that. That suffering has raised its head in your life. That, That you've felt the pain of perhaps the burden of sickness, or maybe the sting of of a broken relationship, or that gut-wrenching anguish of losing someone you love. No one likes suffering. No one who's well, anyway. There's almost this universal acceptance of everyone in our world that, that suffering is not good. It's just not how it's supposed to be. So, how do you make sense of the existence of suffering? How do you make sense of this thing that almost universally everyone says is not good? And the fact that we kind of would generally agree that it's not how it's supposed to be. History has played out over the years, many different philosophies, different worldviews, all of them trying to account for how we deal with suffering. But the thing that we notice is no matter what your worldview, religion or cultural background is, everyone agrees on this. Bad things happen. Bad things happen. Where we differ is in our answer to the question, why? Why do these bad things happen? And tonight, as we come to that question, there's a number of different ways we can approach it. See, some people come to the question of the existence of suffering in a kind of academic and philosophical angle. They, they see the existence of suffering in the world as something that proves that there is no God. Or at least if there is, He's not good. Why would a good God allow these things to go on? And so the questions come not from a place of anguish or hurt, but a purely philosophical position. And if, you, if that's you here tonight, I want to say, I hope there are some answers in this passage for you. I hope you can see some logical and clear answers of why God says that there is suffering, why suffering exists. And we'll actually have some time for you to be able to ask questions, for anyone to ask questions. In fact, there's a number that will come up on the screen that you can text throughout this talk. uh, And we'll pause just towards the end where I can answer any questions that people have on this topic. And then we'll um, answer them and then come back and see what the last bit of the passage says. There it is. There's a number. Write it down on your page or feel free to text it straight away. But others of us come to the question of suffering from a different angle. Uh, People come at this question almost head deep in the midst of suffering and sorrow. In fact, that might be some of you here tonight. You're not trying to prove anything. You're just trying to get through the day to keep your head above water, to really work out how you can have a glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel. And it's my hope that as you look at this passage today, that you'll see a reason and clear and logical answer to the existence of suffering that is far better than any other worldview, but that's not all I hope you see. I hope that you'll see tonight the true answer to suffering is a compassionate and loving and generous God, who at great expense to Himself experiences suffering for us, and He speaks through suffering to us. We'll see a God who experiences suffering for us, and a God who speaks through suffering to us. I want to put it to you, if you understand what Jesus is saying in this passage before us tonight, it will change your life forever. So why don't you join with me now and actually ask God to help you to see the world as He does. To help you hear His truth. 
I know you might have come along tonight, not necessarily calling yourself a Christian. Uh, someone may have invited you along to check Jesus out, and you're not yet fully in. That's fine. We, we, we love having you here. But I want you tonight to maybe just humor me for a moment and give it a go. Ask God to show you what He has to say in His Word. For He promises that those who want to hear, He will reveal Himself to them. So why don't you pray in the quietness of your own head now with me, that God would speak to us through His words to us tonight. Let's pray. Father, tonight as we come and think through an issue that touches all of us, we pray that we would see the world as You see it. That we might hear through Your Word and Your Spirit what You have to say to us. And that You might change us to see the amazing hope You've given us in Your Son. Amen. Well, Luke, the doctor, starts this next section in the book of Luke as Jesus heads toward Jerusalem with these words. Luke 13, verse 1. At that time, some people came and reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. It's kind of hard to know what camp these people who come up to Jesus are in. Are they merely the philosophical, kind of academic question makers that seek to puff themselves up and say, oh, look at those people, they must have been terrible because they got wiped out and killed. Or are they coming with a plea from those struggling to understand what has just gone on? Because either way, what we see at this moment is that things at the time of Jesus were just like things today. Bad things happen. Pilate was the Roman colonial governor in Judea. He really didn't like the Jews that much at all. They were his political enemy. And rather than just having a debate, like politicians kind of do today, to discuss their their views, um, Pilate made his political statements by killing those he opposed. That's a strong statement. And here, what we see is a particularly gruesome moment where he comes to these Galileans. And in this case, it was a statement against them that he wanted to make. And what he does at this point is he sends his henchmen in while these Galileans are at the temple. They're at church. They're worshipping their God. They're offering sacrifices to God. And the moment they are sacrificing to their God, he has them killed and their blood mixed in with the blood that's being sacrificed and offered to God. This is phenomenally offensive. This wasn't self-defense. Pilate wasn't stopping bad people. It was a defenseless and cruel murder. And at this point, you're kind of like, what is this world come to? Why do people do these things? It's true, isn't it? Bad things happen. That's a fact. And sometimes bad things happen because people are bad. It's one of the things that we see here. Bad things happen because people make evil choices. Terrorists bring down planes. Dictators engage in genocide. Self-focused people choose to put their own desires and wants and pleasures above anyone else's. And even more inappropriately, above God's. The world that we live in is a world that has amongst it people who are evil. It's worth stopping for a moment here, just to ask one question. I don't know if you've ever asked this question. What determines whether something is right or wrong? We pride ourselves to be people who are free to live however we want, to do whatever makes us happy, to choose what is good for me and let someone else choose what's good for them. We're, we're people who, who kind of pride ourselves in there being no moral absolutes. But if we really are free to do whatever we want, if there is no absolutely right or wrong thing to do in a certain situation, then we simply cannot say that a self-focused, genocidal dictator is evil. Who says they're evil? What right do I have to say that is wrong? I can't even say they're wrong. The best that we can say, if there is no absolute truth, no definitive right and wrong is, I don't like what they've done. I think it's evil. We have no capacity or framework to be able to say that is wrong. Sure, um, you know, we could try and, and find that some way by maybe getting general consensus. But you never arrive at that 100% because people still do this stuff. All sorts of different worldviews try and deal with this moral question. So atheism says the reason that we're here is that we're an accident. 
Through random chance, molecules collided and over a long period of time out popped humanity. There are billions of possible different multiverses and maybe the probability of there being one where human life comes about on it is, is high. And so we sit here as accidents. Life and death, it's just an accident. But the problem is, <laughs> accidents don't give you wrong or right, they just are. You know, how evil were you to have an accident? You're like, what do you mean? It was an accident. I didn't plan it. You know, I drove my car into another car because I didn't mean to. I wasn't watching the road, but it wasn't an evil intention, just an accident. If there is no God and we are just here by random chance, then, well, it's just survival of the fittest. I can't say that's wrong or right. The most self-focused, evil, genocidal dictator could be the one that survives the longest. And I've got to stand back and say, it's just how it is. Buddhism comes along and says what we, we need to do is we need to get ourselves to the place of nirvana. The place where we, we can kind of exist, where nothing can impact us. That's the place to be where you exist in eternal nothingness. Nothing bad can ever come in because you are just not impacted by anything around you. Whether that be good or bad. That doesn't seem to fit right with the world that we live in. The way to solve evil is just to say, it doesn't exist. It's not going to affect me. I'll just move on. As you come to the Christian worldview, you get a very different view of the world. The very start of the Bible, we read Moses recording what happened in the beginning. In the beginning, God spoke. Do you know what he said? Let there be light. And there was. God comes into the world and he creates the world and he says, it was good. Each day throughout the creation account, God declares what is good and what isn't. Have you ever wondered when you walk outside and you, you feel that moment of the sun shining down on you, the light hitting your face? You know, you get those little tingles in your spine. You're like, oh, this is so nice. Why is the light good? Because God made it that way. He declared it is good. He is the one that made all things and sustains all things. If He made everything and He made it for His purpose then he gets to define what is good and what isn't, what is right and what is wrong. If you take God out of the equation, if you take the reality of there being an absolute, then suffering stops being bad. It just becomes bad luck. Oh, I'm sorry that that person exercised their will over that other person, but it's just how it is. The only way it can be wrong is if there is someone who has the right to set absolute truth. Now, governments do this in a, in a fashion. They have laws that help us to act as a society, but sometimes governments are, are crooked and wrong and their laws aren't necessarily good. The only one that has the right to say this is absolutely correct and true is if there is a God who's made us. Otherwise, we have no other mechanism for working out moral choices, what is right and what is wrong. Well, in response to this atrocity this expression of evil. Jesus responds to these people who've come to him. And he picks up the, the pre, pre, prevalent, can't even say that word. He picks up the prevalent worldview at the time. See, at this time, when, when people saw suffering, they saw something go wrong, some sort of horrible event, the first kind of thought reaction that comes into people's head is, oh, I wonder what they did to deserve that. You ever found yourself there? You see someone in an exam, turn the exam paper over and just smack their head on the table. You're like, they didn't study. And the next thought is, and I did. And you kind of find yourself going, well, of course you're going to get that if you didn't study. And, and we, we kind of extend that whole way of thinking over into life. We see someone whose life goes to custard and we kind of go, maybe somewhere inside, I wonder what they did wrong to deserve that. Or our life goes to custody in the midst of suffering, in the midst of things that kind of happen around us, and we go, what do I do to deserve this? It's kind of like this idea of karma. You get what you, what you give. Well, Jesus here shows something very, very clear. Karma is not the cause of suffering. Karma is not the cause of suffering. Look at his response. Verse 2, chapter 13. And he responded to them. Do you think that these Galileans, 
were more sinful than all Galileans because they suffered these things? Everyone's kind of like, yep, right? Well, I didn't, they must have been bad. No, I tell you, no, it had nothing to do with that. Karma, this idea that, 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 that suffering only comes on those who really, really deserve it, who are more worse than others, is wrong. Not only is karma wrong, but it makes you draw horrendous conclusions. A number of years ago, it was 1999, the manager of the English um, World Cup soccer team uh, was sacked from that position because of his comments about disabled people. And basically, his comments about disabled people came from his worldview, which was karma. He basically said this, that we as a human race and a human society are under no obligation to help disabled people because they're only getting what they deserve from a previous life. Isn't that karma? The reason that things are going wrong for you now is because in a previous life or in a time earlier, you acted in these ways. Why should I help you? Karma removes the compassion that our society has. If that's what you believe, it's horrendous. And somehow the Football Association and the general public both recognized there was something wrong with that view, that it wasn't right. And they fired him. Does suffering happen because someone is more sinful than the others around them? Jesus says emphatically, no. It was not because those Galileans were more sinful that this happened. And then he rolls out another example, this time a little different from the first. The first was evil from humanity expressing itself on another part of humanity, but this second example really just seems like an, an accident. It's the Tower of Siloam. Now, we don't really have many recordings of this tower falling throughout history. We haven't found any apart from in the Bible. But Siloam was a place, that there was, there was a little pool there, and you can imagine that near this pool they built some sort of tower, and what happened was this tower fell down. Now, it was either a natural disaster, like an earthquake, and then the tower fell, or simply just a freak accident. But the tower fell, and it killed 18 people. 18 people died. And everyone stands back and goes, why? Jesus says, do you think that those 18 were more sinful than all the people who live in Jerusalem? In verse 4. Do you think that they died because they were deserving of it? No, I tell you. But then comes a twist in Jesus' answer. He doesn't uphold these Galileans as heroes or martyrs, sacrificing to their God, doing the right thing. He doesn't make an example out of them to say how good they were. He doesn't create a memorial for the victims of the Siloam Tower disaster. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. There's no attempt even to account for their suffering other than to say it wasn't because of something that they did that that happened to them and not to you. He simply says this, verse 3, Unless you repent, you will all perish as well. In the face of suffering, in the face of human atrocity and natural disaster, Jesus' response is, unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Now, on first reading, you kind of go, what is wrong with you? Like, who writes that on a get well card? It's kind of, oh, I'm sorry for your loss. If, unless you repent, you will perish as well. It seems like cold-hearted, right? But as you look into it, it's actually the most loving thing someone could say if it were true. So we all have this tendency to think we're innocent. You know, you hear a siren behind you, and immediately you check, oh, I'm not speeding. And then, you know, the first reaction is to go, okay, I didn't mean to do it. It was an innocent reaction. You get caught out in some area and, and we just, I don't know if you're like me, but you come up with excuses so quickly. You know, I'm oh, sorry I didn't get up to get the kids last night, I was asleep. How did you know that the kids were crying there? <laughs> we have this tendency to think that we come always from, from good motives, but it simply isn't true. We are not innocent. We might be innocent in a tragedy in that the tragedy didn't occur because of something I directly did, but no one is innocent in general. Every single one of us, if you think about it, 
has caused suffering in the lives of others. Everyone. I mean, who in this room today could say they have never caused anyone else in the world to suffer? Not even once. Me either. Now, granted, it'll be to different extents that we've caused suffering in the lives of others, but if it came to the charge of, are you guilty of causing suffering in the lives of someone else? The verdict would be guilty. Rowan, you have done this. It's easy to think that we, well, I haven't done it that much. It can't be that bad. You know, if everyone does it, then it means everyone is guilty. There is no innocent person. The next response then comes, but hang on a minute. Surely the small things that I've done aren't that big. Surely they don't deserve death. But friends, when we've caused suffering in the lives of others, when we put ourselves above others or ourselves above God, we've been phenomenally offensive to the one who made us. You've got to remember for a second that God is the one who made all things. He's the one who sustains us at every moment. And if we say to him, look, no offense, but I just don't want you in my life. Then what we're saying to him is, no offense, but I don't want life. If God is the God who gives life and we reject him, then we are rejecting life itself. If we cause others to suffer and reject the way he had told us to treat others, love God and love your neighbor as yourself, simple, but we fall short of that, then the penalty we deserve is the penalty that we ask for. We don't want God in our life. We don't want life. We've told the God who gives life that we're okay, thanks. We don't need you. We haven't treated him as he deserves. We haven't treated his creation as he deserves. We haven't lived totally with him calling the shots in our life. We have lived our way, not his. And because of that, we deserve to perish. We don't deserve life. There is no one who is innocent. My next reaction as I hear that is I stand back and I'm like, okay, I might not be innocent, but then God, if you're good, why don't you just end all this suffering? What, what about you? <laughs> you know, why haven't you stopped this? I thought you were a good God. But there's a very, very simple answer to that question. If we want God to end all the suffering in the world, we're asking Him to end all those that cause suffering. If we want God to end all the suffering in the world, we're asking Him to end, to stop, to put an end to all those who cause suffering. And that, my friends, is you and me. That means He should, rightly, put an end to you and me right now because we cause suffering in the lives of others. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter, who's a follower of Jesus, one of the, the kind of inner three disciples, is answering this question that the kind of early church has about why is there still injustice in the world? Why hasn't the judgment and the justice of God come yet? Why hasn't Jesus returned? It's what people are asking all around. And he answers it in this way, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It should be on the screen. The Lord does not delay His promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. The reason God hasn't put an end to suffering is because He's giving us time to come back and accept the solution He's offered. He's being patient, not ending the lives of those who cause suffering, not wanting any to perish as they deserve, but to come to repentance. The simple reality Jesus points out in Luke 13 to us here is this, no one is good. As you look at suffering around the world, it exists as a signpost of a reality of what we deserve. The question isn't, why did that Tower of Siloam fall on all those innocent people? The question is, why didn't it fall on me? How is it that I'm 
still walking around breathing this very day when those that experience this suffering are no more guilty than I am and they're dead. When disaster happens, we should be astonished that it didn't happen to us because we are just as deserving. A few years ago, a plane was taking off from New York Airport. And as the plane took off, a flock of birds flew and took out both engines. You hear uh, the radio recording of the pilot say, we've lost power, both engines. The airport radios back and says, turn around and come back. But like, we can't make it. They are over, densely populated New York. There's no power in the plane. What do you do at that moment? What happened next was so amazing that Tom Hanks made a movie about it, right? And called it Sully. And you kind of see what happens in that movie. The pilot then lands a plane full of people in a densely, the most densely populated area, one of, on the earth, in the middle of a river. He lands a plane in the middle of it. This is not a seaplane, this is a jet. They're not meant to land in water. They don't work that way. Usually they just kind of explode and roll and crash. How is it at that moment that there are no boats in the way? Have you ever thought about that? No one was killed. Every single person in that plane walked out onto its wings as it bobbed up and down in the water and was picked up by a ferry. That's not how the end of that story should have come. It should have been a catastrophe. It should have been a total wipeout. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment if that plane had gone down. Society would have been screaming out with their fists in the air, where are you, God? Why do you let this thing go on? Why do you let suffering happen to these innocent people in the plane? Where are you? I'll tell you where God was. He was under that plane, showing incredible mercy to all on board, giving them time to come to Him. They should have gone down. In fact, the last plane I was on should have gone down. If God wanted to express His justice fully at that moment, He should have taken me out. I don't deserve to be here. The fact that I'm still here and you are still here and that we are breathing and are alive is a miracle. The fact that I'm 36 years old, I have a wife who's well, that my kids are alive and and that I'm reasonably healthy and I've got a job is amazing considering I haven't treated God as He deserves to be. Friends, God can do us no wrong because we have all rejected the life-giving God. We've said, I don't need you. We deserve His judgment. We're sinners. Every single minute we have is a gift. It's, It's an opportunity to see how good and generous and loving our God is. And every moment of suffering, as hard as it is, is a signpost. It's a signpost to remind us of what we truly deserve and of our desperate need to come and repent. Now, repentance is kind of like a churchy word, right? It's Christianese. You don't really hear it much outside of of church, maybe in the law court, I don't know, maybe in the movies. You're going to get someone going, will you repent? I don't know. You don't hear it many other places. What repentance means really literally just means to turn back, to to do a U-turn. I think one of the most helpful illustrations of repentance is, um, you know, onto the, on, on the motorways, they've got these signs on the exit. So there's an exit off the motorway and facing the kind of wrong way is a sign that says, wrong way, turn back, right? Big and red. They're for people who make the stupid mistake of trying to get on the off-ramp. Right? And the sign is clear. It's saying, if you continue the way that you are going, there's going to be catastrophe. You are going to go headfirst into traffic traveling at 100 kilometers an hour, and it's not going to be pretty. Wrong way, turn back. It's literally saying, repent. Stop going the way that you're going. Turn around and go back. Jesus tells us, this life that we live in now, life where suffering and evil are not yet put away with, is a chance for you and me to stop going in the direction that will cause calamity. And to turn around and to have life. If we all are guilty 
if no one is innocent. And the right penalty is to perish, is death and judgment. This moment we have now, this picture of suffering, Jesus says, is a sign for us all to say, come to me. So the only way we can escape that calamity is to have someone deal with the calamity we've caused. Someone to do the time for the crime that we've committed. Here in Luke, Jesus is on this trajectory. He's heading to Jerusalem. He's single-mindedly knowing where he's going. This is no accident. And he's walking to a Roman cross where he would die, and he knows he's going to die. He's not walking there because it was unavoidable for him. He's walking there so that death might be avoided for us. How do we avoid death? By turning from trusting in ourselves, by turning from rejecting God and, and trying to run our own lives our own way, to coming to the God who is both the King and our Saviour. He's our Saviour in that He died in our place. He took the penalty we deserved. He perished so that we might have life. He suffered on that cross so that we could be forgiven. And He is the King. And that He's the one who made us, who determines right and wrong, good and evil, what is the best way of living. He's the one that needs to be our King. Repentance is coming and trusting Him. It's it's more than remorse. It's more than feeling, oh, I'm so sorry that I did something wrong and then just continuing in that same direction. Oh, I'm sorry I drove onto the exit ramp, but I'm just going to keep going. It's not that. It is. It's saying, yes, sorry, it includes it, but it's not all that. It's more than just reform. It's not saying, all right, I'm now going to make sure I don't drive onto exit ramps anymore. And you kind of go, right, great, I'm sweet now. That's just saying, I'm still going to run my life, but I think I'll I'll just try and do it harder. I'll try and be better. I'll try and make sure I watch my exit ramp signs. Repentance is saying, I need to stop calling the shots in my life. I need to stop thinking that I can determine what is good and what isn't. And I need to trust the God who made me as my king. See, you can't start a new life with Jesus unless you turn from your old life, unless you give your entire life to him. Repentance is the decision to listen to Jesus. Yes, check out his claims. Don't do it willy-nilly and just be like, oh, okay, I'll do this. See if he actually is who the Bible claims him to be. But if he is the king and if he did make you and me, then we need to come to him as our king and our saviour and put our life in his hands. Put all our actions, our motives, our relationships, our sexuality, our security, every aspect to say, I serve my king. He knows what is best. He knows what is right. And what greater king is there than the one who suffered for us? See, he's not distant in this. He's not like some person who's removed and just playing chess with these pawns called people. He's the God who, out of his love for us, became man and died on a cross to face the penalty you and I deserve so that we don't have to face eternal suffering. He knows what it's like to suffer, for he suffered for us. It's exactly what Peter said in the, chapter, in, the, in the book before that he wrote. In 1 Peter 3.18, he says this, For Christ also suffered for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. This God is not some removed person, but a God that is involved in your life. He died with you in mind. Bad things happen in our world from bad people and just accidents, but they serve as signs to remind us of what we deserve and to remind us of our need to repent or we too will perish. I want to pause for a moment and just give you time uh, for questions. I'm happy to answer anything so far, and then we'll come back and look at something really odd but helpful at the end. So um, let's, let's see. Questions should come up on the screen if you've texted them in. Number one, if we all deserve suffering, does that mean suffering is just random? Uh, great question. Um, I want to say no. The Bible keeps showing us throughout history 
uh, that God is in control of all things. It's not just some random event that happens, that all things happen to a purpose. Uh, we, we read in, um, in the book of Exodus, sorry, Genesis, when, when Joseph and his brothers are in this kind of... Have you ever seen it, the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat? It was actually based on the Bible. And, um, he, <laughs> well, loosely, yeah, thank you. Uh, but there's this moment where Joseph's brothers hate the dreams that Joseph's been having. And they're like, we're just going to kill him. And so they go out to kill him because they, they, they're evil in their response. Joseph's like, what did I do? I said this dream and I told you that you'd all bow down to me. And you understand why they're like, yeah, brat. But they, they, they take him out to kill him. He gets taken off rather than killing him. They sell him into slavery and off he goes. And then through a series of events that God is in control over every single one of them, God puts him to be the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. And there's this huge famine. And the only way that the, kind of, that the Egyptians and those in the surrounding territories could be saved is if they come in and get the food that Joseph has stored up as, as the kind of 2IC of Egypt. And as they come, they come before the brothers, they come before Joseph, and he says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Was the suffering Joseph went through just random? No, God was in control. Were the brothers responsible for doing it? Yes, they did it. That was their evil act. But our God is so good that He uses all things for the good of those who love Him. We might not be able to see exactly why things go bad or why suffering happens, but we know that God has a plan and His plan is good and so we can trust Him. Jesus' death, the greatest act of suffering that ever exists, was no random accident. He willingly walked to His death with you and me in mind so that we might be saved. Was it evil? Yes. <laughs> the Jews shouldn't have done it. But was it planned? Yes. God uses all things for His purposes. The thing is, we just don't know what they are. And so, the reality is for us, as we sit through suffering and as it hurts, to go, I might not know why I'm suffering, but I can know the God who knows why. And I'll trust Him. He suffered for me. Next question. Uh, Jesus seems to say that suffering isn't connected to sin. I seem to be saying that we all deserve suffering for sin. Uh, how do these ideas connect? Yeah. Um, I think what it's saying is, people aren't suffering because they're somehow more sinful than another. It's Jesus' clear moment, clear point that He's making. Um, it's not that they sinned more, that they deserved this more than you did. In fact, you all deserved it. That, that's the kind of point here. Um, so, we all deserve suffering for sin, but not just now in this life. <laughs> we deserve separation from, from God's goodness forever. And so, if you want the suffering that we see in this world, as horrific and horrible as it is, is just a prelude to life without any of God's goodness. Life that is really no life at all, eternal death, eternal separation from anything good that we have. So, while people go through suffering aren't innocent, they're not getting what they truly deserve and neither am I. What we truly deserve is separation from God's goodness forever. Uh, so, hopefully that helps. If there's another question you want on that, uh, come back to me. Next one. Oh. We've been trying to work out a way that you can do this on Twitter. Honest question, I'm just going to use this moment. Um, who would be able to post a question on Twitter right now? Can you raise your hand if, if, if you have the ability to do that? Yeah, that's what I thought. When you've got the ability, but do you, do you like have a Twitter account? Yeah, There's like a hashtag thing. You can just write the question and then it can just come up on the screen when you hit the go button, if they approve it. Yeah. Would that be helpful for people? No. Sit down if it would be helpful. <laughs> oh, great. Okay, uh, question number three, uh, and I'm taking this to the last one for the moment, we'll, we'll see. Oh, great. Awesome. What about suffering caused by natural disasters and sickness? Couldn't God end these kinds of suffering while still giving people time to repent? Uh, yes, God could end those. Uh, people are healed, people get better, sickness doesn't always last um, someone's whole life, uh, but and I had a good point here. Yes. Um, couldn't God end these kinds of suffering while still giving people time to repent? Yes. Uh, but 
he chooses to not do it. Now, I naturally go, why would you do that? And I find myself in this position where I say the stupidest thing. I go, if I were God, I would do it differently. But as I stand back and look at my life, I go, the decisions that I've made, really, if they all went through, they're dumb. They cause suffering for others. I'm not the best kind of judge of what is good and what isn't. And when I look at what God has done, I see Him as good. And so I go, I might not know why He doesn't end that right now. Um, You get one instance of sickness uh, in the Gospels where there's a man who's born blind and uh, people come and say, was this man born blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus says, neither. It had nothing to do with his sin. And you're kind of like, well, why? And Jesus says, he was born blind that you may see who I am, basically. That God may use him in his sickness so that I may heal him now and you might recognize that I am even in authority over sickness and death. We're not going to know all the whys, but the thing to rest in, like the comfort, as we, as we go through these moments, why haven't you ended all this right now, God? Is that He's not unaffected in this. It affects Him. He's come and suffered. He's on the other end of seeing the creation that He has made not be the way that it should be. And He's going, I'm holding it out until the day Jesus comes back and puts all things right. Revelation 21 has this picture of um, there'll be no more crying or death or mourning or pain for that old order of things will be put away with. Why is there suffering in the first place? Well, because actually, by rejecting God, the world has become so broken, not just humanity, but the world itself. The Paul can say in, in Romans that it's groaning. Creation itself is groaning, longing for the day that it gets restored to be as it should. It's more than just us that are broken. Our, our responses to God have an effect on the world around us. Um, last one. Oh, to keep them coming. All right. If God is all present, that means He's everywhere, and all knowing, knows everything, and all that is good, right? Why do you have to create sin or allow us to sin? If he knew Adam and Eve were going to sin, why did he allow us to sin? Um, Good question. Uh, First thing to note, God didn't create sin. Sin is not a thing. I can't can't go, oh, have have a bit more of sin. That's not like an ice cream, okay? (laughs) Eat more of an ice cream. Sin is a a relational issue. It's a relationship where we say to God, I I reject you. It's, it's It's a relationship where I reject him. And so God didn't go, oh, okay, I've got Adam and Eve, great, everything's looking good, just get a bit of sin and sprinkle it in there. It's not what He's doing. He's created the world with free will. He made Adam and Eve not as robots, saying, you must always love me. Like, what would that be like, I imagine? You know, if somehow I could program Sarah to say, Rowan, you are always great. (laughs) I'd be feeling pretty great. I've got to be honest, there's something I like about that. But after a while, I'm like, do you really mean that? Yes, Rowan, I really mean that. Good, because that's what I told you to say. He made us to have real relationship with Him as a good God. He put Adam and Eve in in the Garden of Eden and put fruit around that they might enjoy creation. He gave them rule over the world that He was in. And and He made them rulers just like God, in His image. To have God as, as ruling them and them ruling over creation. And it was good. It was very good. Sin enters the world when Adam and Eve go, I think I can make it gooder. I said that so you remember it. I think I can do a better job than you. In fact, I want to be God. Sin is rejecting God's kingship over us. God didn't create it. We did. Now, God created Adam and Eve with the potential to reject Him. Yes. Why? Well, He doesn't tell us. But I think the robot thing is a helpful illustration. He didn't want to make us as robots. He wanted to give us free will to come back to Him. And He did it at great cost to Himself. Please, please remember this. It's not like God made the world, Adam and Eve stuffed it up, and God's like, now what am I going to do? This was His plan from the beginning. It was always to reconcile the world to Himself through Jesus, who would come and die in our place. Why did He do it? I don't know. But 
But I think on that last day when Jesus returns and all things are seen as they truly are, we'll stand back and go, man, you're good. Now I see how this all links together and why you did it this way. I imagine we don't know all that now. But we have a God who did it at great cost to himself and a God who allows us to respond to him and time to come to him. So the reality is we need to respond while we have the time, not go, well, philosophically, I would have done it differently. Okay, this is the last question. If Christians don't get punished for sin because Jesus was punished for us, why do Christians die in massacres and natural disasters? How can we get punished when Jesus has already been punished for us? Yeah. Again, I'd say in this, um, because we live in a world that's broken. It's the reality of living in a world that's broken. We don't yet experience what Jesus has promised in its fullness. Why don't we experience it yet? Why do we still get punished? Because God is giving time. He's giving time for people to come back to Him and to trust Him, to repent. And so we live in a world that we create suffering and others create suffering. We are not yet what we will be when Jesus comes back. And so we long for that day. Paul says that he wishes to depart and be with the Lord by far, but he will take every day and live it for Jesus in this life. He longs for the day when things are put right, when there is no more mourning and crying and pain and suffering. The question I think is getting at, is there double punishment happening here? You know, if the fine was a million dollars and someone's paid 10 bucks, shouldn't their fine only be 999,990? Because 10's already been paid. I think at that moment when we try and go, well, some's already been paid, we miss how huge a thing it is to reject the living God. No one can pay anything toward that. We have nothing to give. And what he's saying is, I think, that this suffering occurs actually as something that helps us. It helps us recognize what we really do deserve and helps us recognize that we need to repent. Otherwise, death for eternity will be the future. I want to finish now by explaining the parable at the end of this section. I don't know, as, as we read through it, if you're like, okay, I, I kind of get what's going on here, two disasters, Jesus saying this stuff, and then he talks about a fig tree. You're like, what is that? Like, do we, do we cross over into something else? It just comes across as a bit odd. Let me read it to you from verse 6 of chapter 13. And Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree that was planted in a vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and found none. He told the vineyard worker, listen, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? You can kind of think through this, this parable and you're like, okay, it makes kind of sense. There's, there's someone who owns the land, the land's expensive. There's a fig tree, the whole purpose of the fig tree is to produce fruit. This fig tree is not producing fruit, get rid of it. It's wasting the land. There's no point in it being here. Why should it waste the soil? Okay, I get that, but what, what's it going on about? Why is he saying this here and now? Well, throughout the Old Testament, the fig tree is kind of used as a symbol for God's judgment, and particularly God's judgment on Israel, His chosen people. Have a listen to what Jeremiah says to Israel in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13. It should be on the screen. He says this, I will gather them and bring them to an end. This is the Lord's declaration. There'll be no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree. Even the leaf will wither. Whatever I have given them will be lost to them. Jesus brings up the illustration of the fig tree because he's pointing to Israel who are around him. Israel on their own, God's chosen people, are without hope. They've been fruitless for 1,300 years, rejecting God's Word, not putting Him first, uh, disobeying God, serving other gods, doing all sorts of stuff that God said do not to. And here comes God's promised Son. But then, in this parable, we hear a glimmer of hope. Verse 8 of chapter 13. But He replied to him, Sir... Leave it this year also, until I dig around it and fertilize it. Perhaps it will bear fruit next year. But if not, you can cut it down. 
the vineyard worker is saying, just one more year. It's been three, hasn't produced any fruit. Just give it a little bit more time, please. There's a, a glimmer of hope here for Israel. And at this point in the time of the story of Luke, Jesus is saying, there is a glimmer of hope for you, Israel. Your promised king is here speaking to you now. You've got time to repent and not perish, to come and trust me as your king. But unfortunately, we know that year ended. Israel didn't trust him as their king. They never put him as the promised Messiah that he should have been. What they did instead was nail him to the cross. So the problem with Israel was that they never repented. They saw, Israel saw herself as a chosen nation, but never acted like a chosen nation. And God would only put up with it for so long. And as Israel hammered the last nail of their fate into a Roman cross, God, in His sovereign plan, used their evil for good. And He provided a window of hope for us, for us all, There's a possibility right now, because we live in the time when God has not given us what we deserve, when we have time to come to Him. Jesus puts this parable at the end of these statements to say this, come to me before it's too late. That suffering that you see, that is your future. Unless you come to me. There's no doubt that suffering exists in the world that we live in. It's a broken world full of broken people doing broken things. But at great cost to the owner of the vineyard, he has left the window open while his brokenness is still going on around us. While it's hard, yes. He's left a window for something phenomenally generous and amazing. That we might not get what we deserve. That we might come to the one who's died in our place and trust him. We've been given a chance to produce fruit, not of our own, but the fruit of God the Son, who was perfect, the true Israelite, who always lived as God said. We have the chance to come to the one who made us and treat him as our king. On this exact day, a year ago, a friend of mine uh, was diagnosed with leukemia. His name is Dan. In one of those situations where you kind of look at the suffering that exists in the world and you say, Why? Why, God? Not unlike the Galilean situation, Dan was a guy that was, for all intents and purposes, a seemingly good guy. He had a wife and four kids. Uh, He'd been a raft pilot up until that point, and he decided that he wanted to use his life for the kingdom, that he had skills and abilities to be able to teach the Word of God. And so he went off to theological college and got trained up at at Bible colleges in the same college as me. He gave that a go because he was committed to seeing people come to know Jesus. He then went through a church planting assessment and planted a church a couple of years after Auckland EV started. And this church was kind of in a a community near a RAF base in Victoria in Australia. And this this church had just started about about two years old and he gets diagnosed with leukemia. You're like, God, why him? This guy that's in the perfect place, he's a RAF guy, he knows the kind of RAF stuff, he's starting this church in this community, he'd just taken on a ministry trainee to train them up and kind of go forward in gospel ministry, and you're like, why? Why do you do this? Well, he got through the chemotherapy, he then had a successful bone marrow transplant, where they put new marrow in, it was looking good, everything was looking great, until last week. Because of the bone marrow transplant a couple of months ago, I think it was about four months ago, there'd been some complications with his liver and his liver kind of wasn't responding as it should and they really needed to treat the liver but because his body was kind of so tired and drawn out, they couldn't give him the drugs that he needed to fix the liver because the rest of his body was kind of recovering and so they're in this position of what do we do? And so things went downhill and downhill until he died on Wednesday. Almost a year later, Was he any worse a sinner than you and I? No. In fact, that should have been every single one of us, shouldn't it? But for Dan, death was not the end. Death is not the end. I want to read you something that he wrote before he died, as he was reflecting on the suffering he was going through and the suffering that Jesus went through for us. Listen to what he says. Hope is not found in our inner strength. It's not found in our ability to endure. It's not found in our 
faithfulness in the face of adversity or even in our faith. Hope is found in Jesus alone. His conquering of death means that we have new life in the new kingdom. As we reflect on the final dark night before Jesus' death, we look at the one who brings us hope through his sacrificial death for us. And as dark nights come our way, we don't look inwardly for strength, but to Jesus, who is our strength and refuge and hope and life forever. Friends, Jesus is the one that will put an end to all suffering. He's the one that truly knows what it's like to suffer what we all deserve, the wrath of God poured out on Him for us. And He's the one that's done it for you and me. And as we see suffering in the world around us or in our lives, please recognize God knows what it's like to suffer. He's done it for you. But also recognize that you have a small window to come and put Him as your King, to repent and trust Jesus as the ruler of your life. Suffering exists as a signpost in what we all deserve, but also a sign of our need to trust Jesus with everything. True life that lasts forever beyond death only comes through trusting in the one who suffered for us. Tonight, it'd be crazy to go away from hearing that news and not give people, you, the opportunity to say, yes, I want in. There is a window. I don't know how long it lasts. I'm not trying to scare people to say, you better do it or you're gone. But the reality is, death could be around the corner for any one of us. So why don't tonight you say, you know what? I want to trust this Saviour who's died for me, who's given the only reasonable and logical explanation of why suffering exists and the one who knows what it is like to suffer. Why don't you today say, I want to make Jesus my King? What does that look like? Well, it means, number one, coming to God and saying, I'm sorry. Sorry for rejecting you as my King. Number two, it then says, thank you that Thank you for for dying on the cross for me when I didn't deserve it, for not giving me what I deserve. And number three is saying, please, please help me to put Jesus as my King and forgive me for what I've done wrong. If you've been a Christian for 90 years, we still need to hear the reality of how precarious our position is. Nothing that we have done that makes us right before God. It's only because of Jesus. We need to hear this word and say, yes, I'm in. I'm with you. Help me to not wander through times of suffering or, or times of greatness, but to keep trusting you. For those that are here checking out Jesus, I want to say today is the day to say I'm in. So why don't you join with me and ask that God would help us to see suffering as it is, the signpost of what we deserve and the opportunity for us to come and repent so that we would not perish. Let's pray. Father God, tonight we want to thank you. (laughs) We want to thank you that you are good and that you created the world in a way that is right and good and just. Father, we want to apologize We want to say sorry that we haven't treated you as you deserve. That we try and run our lives without you, that we we so often think we know better than you. Father, help us to see the futility of trying to run our lives and your world without you. Father, we thank you that Jesus came and suffered for us. He didn't have to. Thank you that you stepped into the world in the person of your Son, And you absorbed within yourself the judgment that we deserve, the penalty that we deserve. Lord, we don't deserve it, but we are so thankful that you've offered it. Father, please forgive us. Please forgive us for rejecting you and help us to put Jesus as our King. Not living the perfect life, but the life that trusts Him 
that each decision we make, that each motivation we have, the thoughts that we think through, the life that we live, will be lived with Jesus as ruler over all of it. Father, we pray this day that you would carry us. You'd carry us as broken people, trusting in your Son until that last day when Jesus comes back. And true justice is delivered and all things are seen for as they are. And death and sickness and mourning and crying and pain are done away with. Father, we pray you would hold us, trusting in your Son until that day, for there is our hope. We ask that you would make that hope right for us, that we would hear Jesus' word to us today and that we would come and repent and live a life of running to you as our King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.